Good morning, and it's one, whoa, that's loud. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. I want to uh, thank those of you that are visiting with us, the hope that the things that we have done in the assembly are beneficial, that they're edifying to you. I hope the things that I present to you will be beneficial to you as well. We continue our study in the book of Romans this morning, and we look in Romans chapter 10, where Paul is punctuating the fact that salvation is for all Jew and Gentile alike, and it's very important that we understand, as Paul, is, as we've walked through the book of Romans, understanding what it's all about, and we kind of looked at our, our gears and our watch, and as we look at all of these gears have a very specific function, that if one of these gears is not operating correctly, then there's something wrong with the watch, whether it's about telling time or telling the date or something else. And we correlate that to our salvation. As we look at our salvation and how that all of these aspects of salvation work together and all these gears operate together, grace, mercy, repentance, and they all operate for one purpose, and that's your salvation and my salvation. Where these gears sometimes fail are the gears that are controlled by you and I, and those gears that are controlled by God and Christ, those never fail. And we usually look at this chart here and we say we use this as an opportunity to talk about the fact that not one of these is more important than the other. And as we're going through Romans, that we're not going to have to time to talk about every one of them every time because time doesn't allow for it. But today, coincidentally, we do talk about every one of these in some form or, or another as we look at salvation. And so we'll look at our review of the book of Romans. And I know normally I have just this kind of top part up here. But I found this chart that kind of lays the entire book of Romans out for you. And it's a very important chart. And as we look at Romans and we begin there in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the power of God that it came through the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he establishes that principle early on. He establishes the deadliness of sin in Romans chapter 1 and then in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 3, he asks a very important question. Is God the God of the Gentile, or excuse me, the Jews only? And he answers that, that he's the God of both Jew and Gentile. He then proves that by establishing that in the Old Testament law, which the Jews were trying to cling to. He uses that as a testimony. He uses the prophets as a testimony. He uses the Psalms as a testimony. He uses David. And he says all of these things appointed to the fact that God wanted the Gentiles to be saved as well as the Jews. An exclamation upon that is at the end of Romans chapter 3 or Romans chapter 4, he introduces Abraham, the father of their faith. And he talks about how that Abraham was justified by his faith 400 years before the law ever even came into existence. At the end of chapter 4, he introduces Christ. And he talks about Christ in chapter 5. And he talks about Adam there, how that death came into the world by one man so that death passed unto all men, for all have sinned. And we talked about the very important fact that we don't inherit the guilt of Adam's sin, but that we have inherited the, the nature of Adam, that you and I are just like Adam. We have the ability to make choices and decisions. And in doing so and being free will agents, we are going to be disobedient towards God. He also talked about Christ in Romans chapter 5, the first fruits of the resurrection, that we may be resurrected like him. In Romans chapter 6, he opens up asking a very important question. Should, grace, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers no. And he reminds them of something that they had done. He reminds them of their baptism. 
that they had been baptized into Christ's death, that they might be resurrected to a newness of life, that they might crucify the old men. Later on in Romans chapter 6, he establishes another important point, that we're either slaves of sin or that we're slaves of righteousness. There's no other way about it. You're one or the other. In Romans chapter 7, he asks that question. He asked, uh, he asked the question, is, was the law sin? And he says, no. That we needed the law, that we needed the law to understand so that we could understand what sin was. And he goes through that process of this internal struggle that you and I all relate to where he talks about that wretched man that I am. Why do I do the things that I know I know I shouldn't do? In Romans chapter 8, he says, there is now no, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That we walk, we are not debtors to the flesh, that we are debtors to, to the spirit, that we walk in the spirit. In Romans chapter 9, he turns and he establishes God's sovereignty. That we are on God's ball and God's plan for salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. It's His choice and His decision. He quotes from Moses where God said, told Moses, I'll have compassion upon whom I'll have compassion. I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. He later on quotes from the book of Malachi where God said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, talking about the nationality of what God's plan was. That that which is being molded can't look at the potter and go, why did you make me like this? That we are in God's control. So well, before we get into Romans chapter 10, a reminder concerning context. I've done everything that I can do to stay within the context of Romans. I've not tried not to move outside of the book of Romans very much. I've tried to establish all of the principles that Paul's been teaching from the beginning as we layer in more and more principles that he's talking about. And today we reference a lot of those foundational truths that he has already established. And I haven't stepped outside and maybe even gone what we refer to as the universal or the entirety of the context of the Bible. I've left it all within the book of Romans. And it's very important that we understand that because there's so many passages in Romans that are lifted out of its context to use to be taught unfruitful things and downright lies sometimes. So we keep these things in their proper context so that we understand what Paul is trying to teach. We begin in Romans chapter one and verse or chapter ten and verse one. He says, "Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. <clears throat> for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone." who believes. And Paul's talking about Israel, and he's talking about his brethren. He made a very similar statement at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. He's talking about they have, a, they have a good zeal. They have a heart. They have a desire, but it's not in the right place. And he's talking about that their ignorance is in the area of God's righteousness. And it's not that it was an ignorance that they didn't know. It's more of a willful ignorance. They had a willful ignorance concerning God's righteousness, God's righteousness leading one to sanctification, as he said in Romans 6 and 19. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, and then sanctification unto eternal life in verse 22 of the same chapter, that you've been set free from sin. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. One is considered righteous to God when one is obedient to His commandments. As He said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of 
the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So righteousness is thereby, thereby directly associated with God's must, uh, merciful justification. He said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he's talking about the faith that they have, that through him you have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The Jews were not unlike many today. He talks about them being willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness. 2,000 years later, it's the same story. People look at God's will and they go and they say, well, I'm going to pick this or I'm going to choose this or I'm going to lift this out of its proper context in the book of Romans or whatever book of the Bible, and then I'm going to apply that and say this is all that is required. The Jews were doing it with the Old Testament law. We're no different today whenever we go through and we pick things that we like and then discard the things that we don't like. We're doing the exact same thing. We're trying to establish our own righteousness outside of God's will, outside of Christ's will, outside of what Christ was teaching. It's amazing that when we look at what Paul was trying to establish in this understanding of what God's righteousness is, that we can simply select a verse or a text of a verse and pin all of salvation, all teachings on those things. At the end of this, he says there that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone to the believeth. Why was Christ the end of the law? In verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul has a lot of parenthetical statements that you have to deal with as you read through those things. But he starts by talking in, uh, uh, from Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 15, where uh, Moses said, God says to Moses, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am Jehovah. If one desired to obtain righteousness through the Mosaic law, you had to keep all of it. And you had to keep all of it perfectly. Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that. If forgiveness of sins came through the Old Testament law, then as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, then Christ died for no reason. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews makes a very similar statement in verse 1 where he's talking about if Christ didn't take all of this away, then why did the sacrifices cease? Why did they discontinue? And here's the fact that all mankind has a very universal and common experience. And that experience is that we all sin and that we all need forgiveness. He said in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the only answer to that common experience that we all have is Christ Jesus. There is no other answer. There is no other alternative. You cannot establish your own righteousness based upon the law. You can't establish your own righteousness based upon whatever virtue you want to choose. The common sin that we all share can only be answered through Christ Jesus and His blood. 
He uses this, faith, this uh, phrase here, righteousness based on faith and what it says. When it was used to describe a couple of other places in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, it said, talking about the promise that was given to Abraham, that it didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He said in Romans chapter 9, in the previous chapter, talking about those that didn't pursue righteousness, the Gentiles, they have attained it by, through a righteousness that is by faith. So this being the case, what he's saying is you can't go, someone can't say in their heart, well, I need Christ to come down. He's already done that. We can't say in our heart, well, I need Christ to come up. I need some sort of a resurrection evidence so that I can believe what you're saying, Paul. Why? Because if it's based upon a, uh, it's a righteousness based upon faith. Consider what, consider Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 11 through 14. Moses told Israel that God's law were not too hard to follow, that they could be known, that they could understand them. And likewise today, what Paul is teaching, righteousness which is of faith isn't too difficult to follow. It isn't too difficult to understand, but it does require some effort on our behalf. And there's a very important point that Paul does there that he connects that he, about faith, that Paul connects the word of faith to the righteousness, which is of faith. When he says in that parenthetical statement therein, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. He makes that connection, and Paul speaks about the gospel message in righteousness. Faith and righteousness are therefore brought about by God's Word, which Paul was revealing, which the apostles were revealing throughout the New Testament. Now, Paul has stated that one comes to a state of righteousness through the instruction of the Word of God. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, before we get into breaking these two verses down, I think it's very important to kind of go back and look at uh, what we have learned up to this point in the book of Romans. Up to this point, we've learned that justification and righteousness are synonymous, that he's talking about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 4, that his faith is counted as righteousness, that righteousness leads to sanctifications in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. He's talking about they've been set free from sin, and the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. That obtaining righteousness comes by being obedient in Romans chapter 6 as well, that he establishes this principle that you're going to be obedient to sin, or you're going to be obedient uh, to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what is it that we are obedient to, or what is Paul wanting us to be obedient to? First and foremost, we talk about the law of faith, as he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, by what kind of law? By the law of works. No, but by the law of faith. The law of the Spirit of life, in Romans chapter 8 and, verse two, 8 and verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, that we're to be obedient to the law of God, in Romans chapter 8 as well, that for it is not a man to submit to God's law. Indeed, excuse me, for the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God's law, or to God, for it is not submit, for it will not submit to God's law. 
And then finally in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8, that we're to submit to the word of faith. We've also learned that one's faith is directly correlated to one's state of being righteous and justified. When he's talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, that he did not come through the law, his faith didn't come through the law, but the righteousness of faith. We have learned that it is through faith that we gain access to God's grace. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We've obtained access by faith unto this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Now that we've learned all of these aspects of what we're supposed to have, justification and obedience and all of those, Paul says, you now need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not only is confession that He is Lord required, but belief that He is the resurrected Savior. When we do this, we've illustrated our true faith in Christ. Now, I want us to notice, however, that there's been other aspects involved in this, that baptism was also placed into the justification equation in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, so that we've been crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be slaved in sin, that repentance is involved in this equation of salvation as he's talking about repentance in Romans chapter 2 and the the promises of God and the patience of God that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance so the logical conclusion is that confession and faith are inseparably uh, inseparably connected to righteousness and salvation just as obedience righteousness grace and eternal life are all collect, connected there in Romans chapter 6 so is our righteousness and faith. In verse 11, he says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28, and verse 16, to prove that one ob- obtains righteousness through faith and obedience, and those that follow that path will not be disappointed. And Paul's already stated in Romans chapter 2 that God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to the aspect of judgment. That the only distinction that God looks at is good and evil. It's not about race. It's not about gender. It's not about what our state in life is. It's not whether about we're free or that we're slaves. What he's looking at, the distinction he makes, is good and evil. And which side of the equation we are on? Are we slaves to the world and sin, or are we slaves to righteousness? And that's what he's looking for us. And we find another condition at the end of all of this, where he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Is this just another way to state what he said up there in the beginning, where if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Is is he saying the same thing? Is that just another way? I don't believe that's what he's trying to point out. Whenever you look at the literal translation to call upon the name of the Lord, it literally means to appeal, to make an appeal to God. And I want us to look at Paul's own conversion in Acts chapter 22, as Paul was on his way to Damascus to, co- to continue his persecution in the church, he's confronted by Christ. 
He's blinded there. He goes into a city. He's praying for a number of days. And a man by the name of Ananias comes to him, even after all this time of praying. And he says, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Every action in our life, if we are righteous and in pursuit of Christ, in pursuit of God's righteousness, every action is an appeal to the authority of God in Christ. In order to properly call upon the name of the Lord, we must follow what has been revealed. Not only by Paul, but the other apostles as well, as well as Christ. Those who do not call upon the Lord, those who do not appeal to God and follow after what He says, are those that are rejected. So whenever we talk about appealing to God's will, it's not just about those, the one that hears, as he says, so faith cometh from hearing. It's not about just your confession with your mouth or the belief in your heart. It's not just about talking about repentance and the kindness, God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's not about just our baptism, wherefore you're buried therefore with him by baptism into death. It's not about those things only, but this continual appeal of our lives following after Christ, continuing to call upon the Lord each and every day, appealing with every, confessing that He is Lord is not just uttering three words. And unfortunately, that is what's been taught with this passage many times, is that if you just say these three words, if you call upon the name of the Lord, if, if you believe, and we've lifted this passage out of its context to teach something that's not what's there. What Paul was trying to drive home is this constant desire that we have to have to continually appeal to God, to appeal to Christ. If confessing that Jesus is number one in everything and every way in my life, if Jesus is Lord, then He is Lord over our minds. If Jesus is Lord, then He is Lord over our ethics and our values. If Jesus is Lord, then He is Lord over our careers. If Jesus is Lord, then He is Lord over my relationships. If Jesus is Lord, then He is Lord over my marriage and my family. This is a proper calling upon the name of the Lord. This is a proper appeal to Christ that He is everything in my life. That there is no compartmentalization that he's not a part of. That he's a part of everything. And I find it very ironic that people look to this passage talking about calling upon the name of the Lord and submitting to the name of the Lord that he is the everything in their life, but we refuse the very words which he taught himself when he said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. How can we say that we're appealing to the word of God and then say, that passage doesn't fit. Those were his words. Paul turns to his role, not only his role in the gospel, but others' role in the gospel in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And this logic is it's irrefutable if you think about it. How can one make an appeal to the authority of Christ if there is no belief? How can one believe in Jesus if they've never heard of him? How can one appeal to Christ's authority and gain faith without somebody 
teaching them that. And that's what Paul was saying that his responsibility was. That's what the apostles' responsibility was. And they're still teaching that to us today. You can't have faith or believe in something in which you've never heard. And he's talking about having a proper faith in that we call upon, calling upon the name of the Lord properly. Through this progression of belief and people teaching and people being sent, these verses proclaim that one's obedience is a consequence of faith. We reflect, go back to when he was talking about the parenthetical statements there, talking about bringing Christ down or lifting him up, needing some example of of resurrection. And that's what Paul is driving home at this point. It's that it's not this thing that you need to see, that it's about your obedience coming through faith. And that Jesus sent these men into the world that they may teach others that they may be justified from their sin. Paul said in Romans uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, talking to Tim- Timothy, and that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men whose will, who will be able to teach others also. Although the, the apostles proclaimed the gospel message to the Jews, many still rejected it. And we look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul draws a conclusion with the word so. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and the point that saying that our belief and comes through hearing. And what we've seen from Paul regarding this and the use of faith up to this point, faith or belief is directly connected or correlated to one's state of being righteous and justified. All of the things that he's talked about with the law up to this point, that there was no justification in the law. The law had its purpose. It had its plan. It was to point out sin. That Christ was the end of the law. And that all of our faith and justification now comes through, or excuse me, all of our righteousness and justification now comes through faith. How does this initial aspect of faith begin? Paul tells us it's coming from the hearing the word of Christ. There's no other source. There's no other way you're going to hear it. There's no other way we're going to get our faith other than hearing the word of Christ. And that's very important that we understand this because there's many in the world today that talk about Christ, that talk about God, that have no clue about what Paul has taught. They've never understood or even opened the Word of God to see what Paul is talking about, to get a proper understanding of exactly what Christ did. But yet many in this world proclaim a faith in someone whom they actually know very little about. But because it's common in our nation to proclaim Christianity, we talk about Christ and we talk about that we're Christians, and in reality there's so many of us that have no clue about this faith that Paul wanted us to have that coming from the Word of God. And that's a sad reality that we live in. That's also a reminder of our responsibility. That we should be proclaiming these truths to our friends, to our families, to those that are around us that we not 
allow others to just operate on this misguided belief that everything's okay because I say I'm a Christian. In verse 18, he says, But I ask, have, you not, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will not make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've, not, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul closes out the book of Romans by pointing out the authors in which the Jews would be familiar with. He quotes four different verses from the Old Testament. Verse 18 deals with an excuse the Jews might make to justify their unbelief, and the excuse might go like this. The gospel message never really reached us. It never really reached me. And Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 to establish this point. Isaiah prophesied about a message of deliverance for the people of Judah based upon repentance. However, they chose not to do that. They chose not to repent, and they rejected God's promises. The Jews were doing the same thing. The Jews had known God's law. They had known God's promises. They knew what was supposed to happen and all the things that they had been given to them over the years, and they were aware of the law. But here they were rejecting the promises that God had given them, just as they did in the book of Isaiah. They had heard it just as they did in the book of Isaiah. And Paul's saying, I'm taking this excuse away from you. You can't say that I never heard of this gospel truth that's been delivered. You can't say that. I'm taking that excuse from you. In verse 19, he deals with the, the second excuse, that the Jews may say that they didn't know that God intended to bring the Gentiles in with them into salvation. The sad point about this is this is what Paul has been dealing with throughout the entire book of Romans. God's plan to bring the Gentiles in with the Jews in salvation. So excuse number one is, well, we, didn't never, we never heard the gospel message. And excuse number two is, well, we didn't know that was really your plan. We didn't know that was your plan all along to really bring them in. And he goes back to Moses and he talks about, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. I'm going to make you jealous of the fact that I'm bringing in the Gentiles who you didn't believe were good enough to be part of this. So you knew all along that this was God's plan, not only from the book of Moses, or not only from what Moses said, but from the prophets and the law. They all said the same thing, that this was all part of God's plan. Secondly, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 2, stating that God had extended special efforts to Israel. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So I'm going to take these two excuses from you, and here's the reality, Jews. God has spent all of these years with his hand extended to a disobedient people, a people that has continually 
been stiff-necked, rebellious, and contrary. They were familiar with their history. They were familiar with what they had done since the beginning of them leaving Egypt. Continually rebellious. Though the Lord tried to help them, they continually refused his laws. They continually refused his mercy. They continually refused his grace. And here they were again, continuing to refuse God. In Romans chapter 10, it's very important that we take from this the punctuation that Paul is trying to deliver. That it wasn't just about the Jews, but salvation was for all, the Gentiles included. Secondly, it's very important that we understand keeping things in their proper context, that we don't lift passages simply to fit our desires. To say that I need to do just this one thing and that I'm okay with God. As we've looked in Romans and we see all the things that we have responsibilities to be obedient to, those things that we need to be justified in, and those are all done through Christ and His sacrifice and our righteous faith in that sacrifice and what's done for us. Salvation is what the book of Romans is about. It's what the New Testament is about. It's what the old entire Bible is about. The redemption of mankind with our Creator. And whenever we look at salvation in the book of Romans, it begins there in Romans chapter 1. As he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he talks about this gospel that has the power to save. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he tells us what that gospel is. He proclaims that gospel in which they were established and which they were in. And he says the gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he talks about Christ returning, taking vengeance on those who were not obedient to the gospel. How are you obedient to death, burial, and resurrection? How are you obedient to to good news. As we begin looking through Romans, we see that, do you not presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance, His patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He expects us to repent through His patience and His kindness. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, two the, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of the Lord that we have to have faith in those things in which Paul was teaching. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness and life. Paul later on in Romans chapter 6 relates to this very thing when he says, thanks be to God that you obeyed that form of doctrine, that pattern of doctrine, the death, burial, and resurrection. You were obedient to it through baptism. That's how you obey the gospel. 
He punctuates this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I bring this up at the end of all of this, number one, to point out that salvation is intertwined throughout the book of Romans in its entirety. That there's no one aspect that we need to pick and choose to say that this is how salvation comes about. Number two is have you been obedient to that gospel? Have you been obedient to that form of doctrine which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6? Have you proclaimed and confessed the name of Christ? Do you believe that He is the risen Savior? Would you repent of your sins? This morning, if you've not been obedient to that gospel, we can help with that. We have water that's ready available if you want to be baptized and resurrected to the newness of life. Earlier, Paul talked about <clears throat> those finding their own way to righteousness or making the righteousness for themselves. And there's no doubt in my mind that sometimes in our lives we get a, a bit off the path that we have struggles that we have to deal with. As Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7, in that inner struggle that we continually have, and ask that question, O oh, wretched man that I am, why do I continue to do the things that I know I, not, I shouldn't do? And we need help with those things sometimes. Sometimes we have very personal struggles in this world, and we need to take those to God. If you need help in, those, in either of those ways, to be baptized, to repent, confess, and believe, we can help you with that. If you need prayers and a struggle that you may be having, we can help with you, you with that also. If you're in either of these categories, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that has been selected.